Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry, and thank you for joining me today as we outline some of the prophetic fulfillments of our time. Today's message, I hope, will inspire you to get ready for the coming of Christ. We're living in the last days, and it's vitally important that we know and understand our Bibles. We must also take time to commune with God. Big changes are taking place in this world, and it is not without concern that we watch the current developments that are marshalling the nations for the last great conflict. The enemy is working to bring them all under one umbrella, one roof, so to speak, so that all of them will be under the control of one supranational government, one core overruling system that will control the nations. The enemy is doing all he can to prepare for a universal worship law that will require all that dwell upon the earth to worship him, Revelation 13, verse 8. And through worshiping the end-time beast power or church-state power that is seeking to change God's law. But before we begin, I want to welcome all of our new subscribers that have joined our free end-time monthly subscriptions while at General Conference. There are over 5,500 of you, and in adding you to our existing 15,000 subscribers, you're joining a group of people keenly interested in the end times and who want to understand the Bible and prepare for the crisis and the second coming of Jesus. You're going to find that Keep the Faith will help you stay informed on current events with deep analysis of big prophetic issues that are leading our planet into the end-time conflict. Many people have told me in so many words that they are surprised at the depth and breadth of our coverage and the clear links to Scripture. We also have a second subscription that brings you news about prophetic developments on a daily basis. We publish our prophetic intelligence briefings up to five times a week. These are fascinating news items you might have missed cast in their prophetic context. Sometimes they are headline news that simply needs a connection to Bible prophecy. At other times, they need some analysis and explanation. These prophetic intelligence briefings are greatly beloved by our long-term subscribers. We send these out by email and social media each day that they are released. So if you haven't registered your email with us, please do so by going to our website or send us an email requesting our prophetic intelligence briefings, and we'll be glad to put you on the list. Like us on Facebook and you'll get our feed. You can also follow us on Twitter. And like all of our subscriptions, they are free of charge. And if you've started to receive our daily briefings, then you don't need to do anything. But if you haven't, be sure to sign up on our website or contact us directly. Today, most people aren't really thinking prophetically. However, month after month, week after week, Keep the Faith subscribers are developing their prophetic eye and they look for prophetic implications in the news. Many of them send us links with prophetic information that they find themselves. We appreciate this because it often alerts us to issues on which we need to report. And you're welcome to do the same. Keep the Faith is one of the most credible sources for prophetic insight, analysis, and information on the planet today. We intend to keep our good reputation strong. 
Please remember that we do not publish that which we cannot verify from credible sources. So if you want to be sure of something you see or read, check our website or write us an email and ask. We're glad to provide you with as much up-to-date information as we can. For instance, recently there was a so-called real news item going around saying that the Pope had been given instructions by God to change the Ten Commandments. Instead of asking keep the faith, some just forwarded what they received and many, unfortunately, thought it was really true. But we had checked and discovered that it was sourced from a satire website. No credible sources for the story could be found anywhere, so we did not report on it. There are a number of satire websites out there that make fun of things or make political or social statements by satire. Satire in the news is a false or partly false story, often with a relevant point to make, something like a cartoon in text form. But sometimes it's just poking fun at someone or something. Charlie Hebdo, the magazine in Paris, France, whose editorial offices and editors were attacked by the Islamic extremists, not long ago, is a satire magazine. So be careful. Go to our website. It's loaded with accurate prophetic information that you will find very interesting. The address is on all our material. But here it is so you can write it down or type it in. It is ktfnews.com. That's ktfnews.com. Save it on your favorites. As we begin our important subject today, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are in much need of your Holy Spirit. We hunger to know your word and live by your principles. We know we are in the end times, but we often miss the important prophetic markers you have revealed to us in your word. The Bible gives us so much detail about our times, but we need to have your Holy Spirit to teach us how to understand them in light of your word. Thank you for being with us today as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to lay a little foundation for our new subscribers. It will also be a good reminder for our long-term subscribers as well. First, the Bible does not name end-time entities like nations or churches. It describes them. That's very simple but very important to understand. Second, when you study the Bible, you have to think about what it is saying and what it isn't saying. Carefully analyze the Scripture. For instance, when the Bible says in Revelation 13, verse 8, that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, it is talking about globalization, globalized worship, that is. It does not use the modern term, but it describes precisely what will happen. And today, we look at the headline news, and it's patently clear that globalization is being constructed just as the Bible predicted. So what does globalized worship mean in a practical sense? There's no way for anyone to establish a global system of worship without a global system of governance, including a global political system, a global economic system, a global educational system, and a global enforcement mechanism. All of this is being developed right now, much of it in the name of fighting terrorism. But globalization is absolutely essential for global worship laws. Thirty years ago, this was the stuff of conspiracy theories, and those who talked about these things were relegated to the fringes of lunacy. But the Bible predicted it, and now it is so obvious that it's hard to miss. Globalization is the stuff of the news, and internationalists, as globalists like to be called, aren't hiding it anymore. They're openly shaping the future world on every front. Globalization is front and center, 
If you want to understand the movements and the actions of President Obama or any American president, for that matter, you must understand the trajectory of globalization in the Bible. If you want to understand why Germany is rearming and restoring her political and military muscle, you need to understand globalization and where the Bible says it is headed. If you want to understand why we at Keep the Faith could confidently and accurately predict in September of 2010 that Greece would not leave the Eurozone, you need to understand the Bible. Once you do, many of the strange things you see in the news will make much more sense. Number three, the Bible clearly and prophetically details everything you need to know about coming events in ways that most of us have never realized before. And amazingly, there is an enormous amount of detail. Please go back and study the story of Nimrod in Genesis 10 and 11. Please go back and rethink the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapters 1 to 3 and chapter 6. And if you really want to study on end time events as it relates to God's people, go back and study the story of Esther. Even the secret deals behind the scenes that are designed to bring God's people into deep trouble in the last days are all revealed there. And if you're paying attention, money and the economy is at the center of it. If you want our sermons on these topics, go to our website, search for the keywords, and you'll find fascinating material to expand your mind on prophetic things that will help you understand our times. I'm going to read a statement now from Fundamentals of Education, page 126. This is so important to understand. Please listen carefully. The Bible is the only rule of faith and doctrine, and there's nothing more calculated to energize the mind and strengthen the intellect than the study of the Word of God. No other book is so potent to elevate the thoughts, to give vigor to the faculties as the broad ennobling truths of the Bible. If God's Word were studied as it should be, men would have a breadth of mind, a nobility of character, and a stability of purpose. That's rarely seen in these times. Thousands of men who minister in the pulpit are lacking in essential qualities of mind and character because they do not apply themselves to the study of the Scriptures. They are content with a superficial knowledge of the truths that are full of rich depths of meaning, and they prefer to go on, losing much in every way, rather than to search diligently for the hidden treasure. No wonder we have so many compromising and weak-kneed Christians today. They don't study the Bible as it should be studied. My friends, I have found that when I mine the great truths from Scripture and dig into it, the Holy Spirit gives me so much that I can at times hardly contain myself. We don't often comprehend the treasures we have in Scripture. And one of our key aims at Keep the Faith is to increase your confidence and your reliance on Scripture as your guide in navigating the future. There's no better source of information and counsel. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 and 23. The Bible tells us what's going to happen to nature as we near the end of time. As increasing pressure is placed on the sensitive ecosystems of our planet, it is increasingly difficult for them to recover from abuse. Everything is intertwined. One thing often affects many other things. Listen to what Paul says. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, 
which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. The gradual destruction of the ecosystems of creation also affects humanity. We are utterly dependent on them for survival. As these resources are being undermined in various ways, human beings, particularly those living in the big cities, will be greatly stressed. Sometimes nature responds, and there are massive die-offs of birds and fish and insects. At other times, nature reacts with vengeance which threatens our food sources and water sources. We end up with drought and famine and other natural disasters. And while there's debate about the human contribution to the collapse of ecosystems, there are other forces in play as well. Listen to this amazing statement from The Great Controversy, page 589. Satan works through the elements also to garner his harvest of unprepared souls. He has studied the secrets of the laboratories of nature, and he uses all his power to control the elements as far as God allows. It is God that shields his creatures and hedges them in from the power of the destroyer, but the Christian world has shown contempt for the law of Jehovah, and the Lord will do just what he has declared that he would. He will withdraw his blessings from the earth and remove his protecting care from those who are rebelling against his law and teaching and forcing others to do the same. Satan has control of all, whom God does not especially guard. He will favor and prosper some in order to further his own designs, and he'll bring trouble upon others and lead men to believe that it is God who is afflicting them. While appearing to the children of men as a great physician who can heal all their maladies, he will bring disease and disaster until populous cities are reduced to ruin and desolation. Even now he is at work in accidents and calamities by sea and land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes and terrific hailstorms, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves and earthquakes. In every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. He sweeps away the ripening harvest and famine and distress follow. He imparts to the air a deadly taint and thousands perish by the pestilence. These visitations are to become more and more frequent and disastrous. Destruction will be upon both man and beast. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The haughty people do languish. The earth is also defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. That's Isaiah 23, verses 4 and 5. Friends, based on these verses of Scripture and from the book Great Controversy, it is patently clear that nature and creation will take a very big hit in the last days. And we're seeing that now as we see how stressed nature is. Scientists, especially those that do not acknowledge God, the creator of nature, cannot discern how to control creation or limit her destruction. Yet Satan knows the secrets of the natural world. He's always ahead of science. He organizes natural problems that science can only begin to understand. And friends, it is not science that should have to tell us this. Science only confirms what Scripture says will happen. It cannot counteract it. What was revealed in the ancient Scriptures about our time is now being validated by science. Scientists can wring their hands all they want, but it will not change the course of prophecy. Climate summit after climate summit can bring the focus into the problem of degradation of nature, but 
creation's gradual decline will continually increase the pressure. Notice that the cause of nature's degradation is a result of man's rejection of God's law. Yet men will think they're doing right. Scientists are often foremost in rejecting the biblical account of creation and the root cause of environmental problems. No amount of political resolve, even on a global scale, will ever bring nature back into alignment. The United Nations can call on nations to make laws to protect nature, but it will not change the trajectory of the effect of rejecting the law of God. Human efforts to protect nature can only do so much. The Pope has now called on Christians and all people all over the world to take serious action to protect nature through his new encyclical. But it is actually the papacy that's leading the world in the rejection of God's law and thereby increasing the withdrawal of God's blessings and protection. Rome's pious appeals for the protection of creation just masks Satan's aims to eventually blame God's people for the disasters. In the name of God, rejection of his holy law will become universal under Rome's leadership. Satan will be given permission to greatly increase the damage caused by the destruction of nature, and Rome and others will say that it is God's judgments that are being poured out. They will point to God's people who keep his holy law, especially his seventh-day Sabbath, as the cause of God's displeasure. Pope Francis is a radical, and he's potent. He's so radical that he says and does things that are very surprising to many. He says them in such a positive way that millions are charmed by his style, especially as he calls to upset the social and political status quo. He's continually surprising the world with statements that reflect his sheer determination to get all the world to align with Rome in collaboration, if not in worship, at least for now. His new encyclical, Laudato Si, is an extraordinarily frank document in which the Pope lambasts rich countries for looting the world and takes aim at bankers and climate skeptics for accelerating its decline. Sounding like an apocalyptic preacher, warning of crop failure, economic ruin, mass migration, and the destruction of entire ecosystems, he says, if the current trend continues this century, we could witness climate change unlike anything seen before, and the unprecedented destruction of ecosystems with serious consequences for all of us. Is he reading the Bible? The Bible tells us that these sorts of things will happen. Instead of warning his flock to get ready for the end times, he's telling them that they have to find ways to stop the deterioration of nature and establish a global collaboration on the environment. The encyclical is also withering about what the Pope sees as economic injustice and takes aim at the global financial system. And I quote, The economic powers shall continue to justify the current world system, he wrote, in which speculation and the aim for financial returns to prevail that tend to ignore the effects on the environment and on human dignity. So clearly, it reveals that environmental, human, and ethical degradation are intimately connected. Francis took aim at developed countries in particular, and I quote, The warming caused by the enormous consumption of some rich countries, he wrote, has repercussions in the poorest places on earth especially in Africa, where the increase in temperature combined with drought has had disastrous effects on the performance of crops. He reams political stagnation and calls for a global political authority to address abuse of the environment. 
Here's another quote. It is remarkable how weak international political responses have been, he said. The most one can expect from the political system is superficial rhetoric, sporadic acts of philanthropy, perfunctory expressions of concern for the environment, whereas any genuine attempt by groups within society to introduce change is viewed as a nuisance or an obstacle to be circumvented. To manage the global economy, to revive economies hit by the crisis, he continued, to avoid any deterioration of the present crisis and the greater imbalances that would result, to bring about integral and timely disarmament, food security, and peace, to guarantee the protection of the environment and to regulate migration. For all this, there is urgent need of a true world political authority. Friends, this is classic globalism. The bottom line is that the Pope wants to influence the debate on climate change and essentially guide the outcome. He hopes the encyclical through people pressure will raise the ambition of political leaders to agree to unite on environmental protection. The principles of Rome are socialistic. Rome is perhaps the most centralized government in the world, but it is deeper than that. If Rome is ever going to sit as a queen, as the Bible says she will, she must urge the nations to adopt socialism or central planning and promote regionalization and globalism. Rome will never be able to impose Sunday worship on the whole world, for instance, without these key elements in place. This is very important to understand about the Vatican from a prophetic point of view. Their influence is toward more socialism, a soft glove kind of socialism, of course, but with religion at the center of it. Perhaps we can call it a religious socialism. That's why when Francis visited Evo Morales, the Bolivian president, a few weeks ago, Morales gifted the Pope a wooden crucifix carved into a worker's hammer over a sickle facing downward, a symbol of communism. Though the unexpected gift took the Pope and the Vatican by surprise, what may have really shocked him was what Morales said. Morales told the Pope that his push to create a world where nobody is excluded makes him a fellow socialist. The Vatican quickly tried to play down the idea of Francis being a socialist, and especially the idea of the merging of communism and religion. But the fact of the matter is, that's what popes preach and teach, a form of socialism or strong centralized government that provides social welfare to almost everyone and where the church plays a pivotal role in the political institutions of the state. Sometimes there are people who bring hidden realities to the surface. Morales' politically incorrect statement was essentially taking a hidden fact and putting it up on the table where everyone could see it. He was pointing out a reality that most people miss because it's hidden behind all the papal piety, the charisma, and the charm. But it is nevertheless a fact that is obvious to all who are paying attention. Morales was not the only one to pick up the socialism of Pope Francis. Steve Moore, chief economist of the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, said, Pope Francis, and I say this as a Catholic, is a complete disaster when it comes to his public policy pronouncements. On the economy and even more so on the environment, the Pope has allied himself with the far left and has embraced an ideology that would make people poorer and less free. Now that's socialism. 
Apparently, Steve Moore recognizes it for what it is, even though he doesn't understand the Bible or its prophecies about the end times. If ever there's going to be a universal or global worship law, there has to be less freedom and more poor people that are dependent on the government handouts that can be controlled by the threat of losing them and forced, if possible, into the worship of the beast. Getting rid of the middle class, a key globalist aim, also removes most independent thinkers and more government dependence results. Popes like Francis urge nations to do nearly all the things that socialism and communism claim to do. They appeal to the poor working class and try to give them more political influence. This gives the papacy influence with elected officials in democratic countries, and it keeps dictators mindful of papal influence on the masses of their citizens. The crucifix on the communist hammer and sickle is a rather precise and fitting symbol of the aims of the Vatican, to place the church over the socialist state. But it is not just developing nations that the Vatican aims to manipulate. Western nations are taking on big government and social programs like never before. They're becoming increasingly socialist in their policies and practices. Rome's influence on them is telling. No wonder the middle class is gradually being stripped out of the developed countries. The underlying principle is to make the nations socialist, while people blindly carry on, seemingly unaware that the nations are being realigned with papal principles and consolidating under world leaders on a trajectory that's taking them directly into the fulfillment of long-held Bible prophecy. Here is something that all of us need to understand. The Bible tells us that the future belongs to socialism. Keep in mind that Revelation 13 reveals a socialized or collective religion in which all that dwell upon the earth shall worship the beast or his image. That church-state mixture is a satanic brew that will isolate God's people and pin them into a corner so that they will have to make a choice between God's law and man's law. Pope Francis has continually promoted radical economic change. And so did Benedict XVI, so did John Paul II, as did previous popes. They are not opposed to socialism, they promote it. They are only opposed to socialism that excludes them and the Vatican from political engagement. And while the Pope is pushing the world toward a new economic model which highlights papal philosophy, he's linking that model to another socialist agenda, climate protection and environmentalism. In his new encyclical Laudito Si, Pope Francis pushes for a new world order in which humanity takes care of nature. Though this is ultimately impossible so long as man rejects God's law, when the Pope speaks out on an issue, it is difficult for nations to ignore him, particularly nations that are closely tied to the Vatican, like the United States, Europe, and even Latin America. Pope Francis has been pushing protection of the climate for quite some time now. A year before the encyclical was released, he said that the destruction of nature is our sin. Here are his words. This is one of the greatest challenges of our time. To convert ourselves to a type of development that knows how to respect creation, he told students and farmers while speaking at a university. When I look at America, also my own homeland, South America, so many forests, all cut, that have become land that can no longer give life. This is our sin, exploiting the earth and not allowing her to give us what she has within her.
Until Pope Francis' encyclical, many people, particularly in Western nations, were uncertain about the relevance of the environment to their personal lives. Some are indifferent and nonchalant, perhaps because of the lack of traction at climate change summit after climate change summit. People intuitively know that implementing a climate agenda will cost them dearly. Some think that technical solutions will emerge to solve the problem, so they're waiting for that. Obviously, the papacy sees the climate issue as a key opportunity to influence the nations and strengthen their political stature in the minds of people around the world. The promotion of the encyclical in its lead-up to its release was very telling of the papal plan to insert religion into political debates over climate change. The Pope hopes to spark another revolution. It also reveals how the Vatican intends to use climate change to its advantage as it integrates concern for the climate and its appeal to have the world respect papal guidance. For instance, Cardinal Peter Turkson, president of the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace, gave a speech in which he described the broad implications of the upcoming encyclical. Turkson, who helped the Pope develop the first draft of the encyclical, stressed that religion plays a vital role in dealing with the effect of climate change. He also tied the environment into the economy by saying that global inequality and destruction of the environment are the greatest threats we face as a human family today. Saying that the year 2015 is a critical year for humanity, he described an integral ecology that involves creation, human development, and concern for the poor. Turkson also said that the Pope has echoed the sense of crisis that many in the scientific and development communities convey about the state of the planet and the poor. Notice what is happening here. Most scientists have stridently called for the protection of the environment and have urged nations to take action. UN leaders have also called for international multilateral agreements that would stem the effects of the deterioration of nature because of human pollution and other activities. And now the Pope weighs in, saying that there is a moral dimension to climate change. Do you think the papal encyclical will help align scientists with the papacy and build papal credibility in the scientific community? Of course it will. As papal pressure increases international collaboration, scientists will certainly be more open to working with Catholic scholars and scientists. Rome aims to be in the middle of that dialogue. Scientists are atheists, and they ridicule religion in various ways, but the Vatican is positioning itself to be a credible Christian voice to the scientific community. Already the Catholic Church supports deistic evolution, and evolution with God involved, and though no one expects the Catholic Church to throw out the divine in its evolutionary ideas, scientists can now find common cause with the Catholic Church, and instead of ridicule, there is likely to be much more respect. The Pope is aiming to radically redefine the way the scientific community views the Church. It's kind of an ecumenical approach to the scientific community. Just as the ecumenical movement has silenced or neutered most of Rome's opposing voices in Christian circles, Rome is now taking aim at secular minds and seeking to neuter them too. Take note of that, my friends. That is prophetic. When the Bible says that all the world wandered after the beast in Revelation 13 verse 3, do you think it means what it says? I do. You may remember that the Pope made friendly comments about atheists being redeemed. 
While some were quick to say that the Pope's words didn't imply that they would be saved if they did not believe, they were nevertheless the subject of much discussion and favorable impressions. We are called to protect and care for both creation and the human person, Turkson said. These concepts are reciprocal, and together they make for authentic and sustainable human development. The Pope, Turkson said, is pointing to the ominous signs in nature that suggest that humanity may now have tilled too much and kept too little, that our relationship with the Creator, with our neighbor, especially the poor, and with the environment, has become fundamentally unkept, and that we are now at serious risk of concomitant human, environmental, and relational degradation. That's quite a profound argument, really. Environmentalism is a perfect match for papal claims over all of humanity. It provides the Pope with an opportunity to tie Rome's larger agenda to an issue that clearly affects every living human being. He's taking it beyond the level of debate and elevating it to the next level, where none but Rome's ethical and moral voice can be inserted into the discussion. After all, no one can argue that we should not protect the environment. And while that has its challenges, political, social, and even ethical challenges, it is nevertheless true. The Pope knows that it's true. So he sees the opportunity to talk to the whole world about it and insert papal influence into the discussion, and placing the Vatican right in the center of it. The encyclical gives the issue of environmental protection considerable prominence and will give the Pope significant influence in the upcoming climate conference in December in Paris, France. The UN hopes that a new set of sustainable development goals will be signed, and Pope Francis' encyclical, he hopes, will have significant moral influence on the negotiators in Paris that will give the matter a sense of urgency and improve the odds of reaching a final agreement. Few individuals wield a megaphone as big as the Pope, said Elliot Duringer, who tracks the negotiations as Executive Vice President for the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. He can introduce a genuine moral dimension into a debate that otherwise is far too ideologically driven. We typically make the case based on science, Duringer added, but when science and religion are pointing in the same direction, that can be a powerful signal. Again, U.S. Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse said his standing throughout Europe is such that he could be a real presence in Paris. Sustainable development is a key word of the climate change industry. It is also a key word that globalists use to insist on a supranational control over the way natural resources are used. It involves every mine shaft, every stream, lake, and pond. It involves the use of the sea, including fishing and recreation. It involves the crops we cultivate on our land and the very air we breathe. It means international collaboration in creating a future that is ecologically stable and sustainable on every front. It is so broad and all-encompassing that we wonder why the papacy hasn't inserted itself into the conversation before now. Rome insists that its moral influence is needed in whatever decisions and international agreements may arise. It also means that supranational oversight and control of nations under UN leadership in other words, more globalism. Nations have to give up some of their sovereignty and yield to international pressure, especially pressure from the Vatican. And the Vatican is positioning itself to lead the world by publishing an encyclical of this type. 
Pope Francis is a master at shaping opinions on a global scale. While John Paul was as skilled as Francis and was a pope for his time, including the orchestration of the collapse of atheistic communism, Pope Francis is just as much a pope for his time as well, particularly with the maturing of the ecumenical movement, the resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire, and now the capture and restructuring of the climate debate. The intentions of the Pope go way beyond the usual debate concerning whether climate change is a result of Earth's natural cycle of warming and cooling or whether human activity has had something to do with it. He elevates the discussion to the moral plane, saying that the Christian, and for that matter humanity in general, has the moral obligation to care for God's ongoing work of creation. By implication, he's speaking for all Christians, not just Catholic ones. And by further implication, he's placing the Christian above all others who do not have as much concern for the environment, including Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and others. And it runs deeper than that. The Pope wants these other non-Christian religions to join with Christians in protection of the environment, in a new level of the ecumenical movement. Mother Earth, or Gaia as it is often called, is a new age and formerly pagan concept in which the earth is the mother of all living, the source, the genesis of all things animate and inanimate. Pope Francis even mentions Mother Earth in the encyclical in a reference to these new age religious views. In the propaganda war, Pope Francis is suggesting that Christians unite with all those who are concerned about sustainable development, and by implication, he's calling on all others. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, New Agers, etc., to join with Christians in the work of protecting the earth. By doing this, he's seizing the climate discussion and inserting the Catholic Church at its head. From now on, no discussion can really take place about climate change without acknowledging the Catholic Church and its own scientific community. Cardinal Turkson said, leaving faith outside such conversation undermines a vital and powerful source of meaning and action in the common effort to address both climate change and sustainable development. In other words, major issues on our planet, such as climate change, must involve faith, as in papal guidance and its religious voice. My friends, we are seeing the centralization of global papal influence through the use of environmentalism. The encyclical was inspired by a report of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released last November. It said that climate change is happening and that it is almost entirely man's fault. Though there is debate and some disagreement on the report, Pope Francis has accepted it in principle and sided with it. He is not in that debate. He's aiming to use Genesis 2.15 to bring the Christian world into political alignment with him in protecting creation. There's another level that the Pope is no doubt thinking about. He knows that creation and worship of the Creator go together. He could have even used Revelation 14.7 to argue that true concern for nature involves submission and worship of the Creator. Here's what it says, Revelation 14.7, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Those that understand the Bible recognize that the reference to worship in this verse is referring to the seventh-day Sabbath, which is the only day of worship authorized in Scripture, and it came in at creation. 
By the fact that creation and the Sabbath are linked together, the Pope knows that protecting creation will lead to the protection of the Papal Sabbath, which Popes have always assigned to Sunday. Francis pointed out that Pope John Paul II connected human development and care for the environment and emphasized the need for a global ecological conversion and that efforts need to be made to safeguard the moral conditions for an authentic human ecology. He also called on the world to make profound changes in lifestyles, models of production and consumption, and the established structures of power which today govern societies. The popes have always been interested in reformulating the structures of power that govern society and align them with papal philosophy and guidance. Pope Benedict linked the economy with the environment too, Francis writes. He proposed eliminating the structural causes of the dysfunctions of the world economy and correcting models of growth which have proved incapable of ensuring respect for the environment. He also linked ecology to society and the family. The book of nature, he said, is one of the an indivisible and includes the environment, life, sexuality, the family, social relations, and so forth. It follows that the deterioration of nature is closely connected to the culture which shapes human coexistence with each other and with nature. He said that it was important to acknowledge that the natural environment has been gravely damaged by our irresponsible, self-centered behavior. Pope Francis was more blunt than his predecessors. Before the release of his encyclical, he said, I don't know if human activity is the only cause, but mostly, in great part, it is man who has slapped nature in the face. Francis wrote that Mother Earth now cries out to us because of the harm we have inflicted on her by our irresponsible use and abuse of the goods which God has endowed her. We have come to see ourselves as her lords and masters, entitled to plunder her at will. The violence present in our hearts, wounded by sin, is also reflected in the symptoms of sickness evident in the soil, in the water, in the air, and all forms of life. This is why the earth herself Burdened and laid waste is among the most abandoned and maltreated of our poor. She groans in travail, quoting Revelation 8.22. We have forgotten that we ourselves are the dust of the earth, Genesis 2, verse 7. Our bodies are made up of her elements. We breathe her air. We receive her life and refreshment from her waters. And now faced as we are with global environmental deterioration, I wish to address every person living on this planet. In this encyclical, I would like to enter into dialogue with all people about our common home. Francis continually speaks of the need for solidarity of the human family to collectively address the environmental dangers that he enumerated at great length in the encyclical. The urgent challenge to protect our common home includes a concern to bring the whole human family together to seek a sustainable and integral development, for we know that things can change. Humanity still has the ability to work together in building our common home. What does it mean to bring the whole human family together? That's papal speak for globalization and supranational governance, and it's leading directly to its final destination, worship of the beast. 
I urgently appeal then for a new dialogue about how we are shaping the future of our planet, Francis wrote. We need a conversation which includes everyone, since the environmental challenge we are undergoing and its human roots concern and affect us all. We require a new and universal solidarity. Like the fight against terrorism and Muslim extremism has permitted students of Bible prophecy to see how the predictions of the Bible will be fulfilled in the name of a good cause, now climate change helps us begin to see the fight against climate change will lead to global solidarity or supranational government, and the Pope has argued piously and powerfully to that end. No one can credibly argue with his appeal, Yet that appeal is leading us in a trajectory that will eventually take us to a universal worship law aimed especially at those who love God supremely and keep His Sabbath law, found in the Bible. Listen to what Pope Francis says about the Sabbath. Rest on the seventh day is meant not only for human beings, but also that your ox and your donkey may have rest, Exodus 23, verse 12. The Bible tradition clearly shows that this renewal entails recovering and respecting the rhythms inscribed in nature by the hand of the Creator. We see this, for example, in the law of the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested from all His work. He commanded Israel to set aside each seventh day as a day of rest, a Sabbath. Late in the encyclical, Pope Francis, as expected, brings up the subject of the Papal Mass. He cannot avoid it because it's so essential to Catholic teaching and faith. It is in the Eucharist that all that has been created finds its greatest exaltation. Speaking of the Eucharist as the living center of the universe, he says the whole cosmos gives thanks to God. The Eucharist joins heaven and earth. It embraces and penetrates all creation. Thus, the Eucharist is also a source of light and motivation for our concerns for the environment directing us to be stewards of all creation. Of course, the Eucharist and the Mass are celebrated on Sunday, the papal alternative to the Bible Sabbath. On Sunday, our participation in the Eucharist has special importance, he writes. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day which heals our relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others in the world. Sunday is the day of the resurrection, the first day of the new creation whose first fruits are the Lord's risen humanity, the pledge of the final transfiguration of all created reality. It also proclaims man's eternal rest in God. In this way, Christian spirituality incorporates the value of relaxation and festivity. Tying rest in with work, he says, we tend to demean contemplative rest as something unproductive and unnecessary, But this is to do away with the very thing which is most important about work, its meaning. We are called to include in our work a dimension of receptivity and gratuity or thankfulness, which is quite different from mere inactivity. Rather, it's another way of working which forms part of our very essence. It protects human action from becoming empty activism, and it also prevents that unfettered greed and sense of isolation which make us seek personal gain to the detriment of all else. The law of weekly rest forbade work on the seventh day, so that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your maidservant and the stranger may be refreshed. Exodus 23, verse 12. Rest opens our eyes to the larger picture and gives us renewed sensitivity to the rights of others. 
So the day of rest, centered on the Eucharist, sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and the poor. What an argument! Francis skillfully weaves Catholic worship into environmentalism, but that should not surprise the student of the Bible. The constant aim of the papacy is to advocate Sunday rest. Lastly, Pope Francis masterfully points to the heavenly Sabbath of rest. Even now, he writes, we are journeying towards the Sabbath of eternity, the new Jerusalem, towards our common home in heaven. Jesus says, I make all things new, Revelation 21, verse 5. Eternal life will be a shared experience of awe in which each creature resplendently transfigured will take its rightful place and have something to give those poor men and women who will have been liberated once and for all. Here's another important point to think about. The adoption of the more open and liberal views and teachings by the papacy over the last several decades has been very appealing to Protestants and Protestant America in particular. The ecumenical movement, which is all-embracing, now has traction and is drawing all Protestant churches into Rome's embrace. This makes Rome's teaching less and less offensive and more politically acceptable as well. So now environmentalists hope that U.S. Christians and others will take note of the problems with nature and get in harmony with it. The encyclical is likely to increase ecumenical collaboration. That would be one of the aims of the papacy. Listen to this from Last Day Events, page 130. How the Roman Church can clear herself from the charge of idolatry we cannot see. And this is the religion which Protestants are beginning to look upon with so much favor and which will eventually be united with Protestantism. This union will not, however, be affected by a change in Catholicism, for Rome never changes. She claims infallibility. It is Protestantism that will change. The adoption of liberal ideas on its part will bring it where it can clasp the hand of Catholicism. Do you think we're at the time when Protestantism is almost united with Roman Catholicism? We're watching the fulfillment of this specific prophecy being fulfilled right now. From the same page and book we read the following. The professed Protestant world will form a confederacy with the man of sin, and the church and the world will be in corrupt harmony. Friends, it will be a harmony built on pious-sounding principles. It will be a harmony in favor of good ideas and projects. Do you think that the sinister work of the man of sin is going to appear in the garments of corruption? It appears in garments of enlightened humanity. It will be positive. It will be encouraging. It will be embracing and welcoming, but it will also be deadly. I suspect strongly that because the ecumenical movement has reached such a high state of collaboration with Rome that it is now time for Rome to take on other aspects of social concern, such as the environment, to bring Protestants and scientists and perhaps even Muslims and other religions closer to Rome as they unite together in environmentalism. Rome sees many advantages through using the environment to improve her stature, and the time is now. Combined with the promotion of socialism, which is taking Latin America by storm, Rome will use environmentalism to appeal to the masses. They, in turn, will put pressure on their leaders. Their leaders know that they have to negotiate with Rome, and thus Rome gains stature and more power. The ecumenical movement has another dimension in light of the Pope's encyclical. 
Being a religious document, it will have special weight among Rome's ecumenical partners, including evangelicals, Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, and others who share the Pope's concerns. This will give them a new rallying point around which to unite more closely. But it could easily involve other religions such as Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, etc. New Age religions are also susceptible to it as well, since they have a concern for nature's harmony. The encyclical appeals to all religious ideals. Alden Mayer, Director of Policy and Strategy for the Union of Concerned Scientists, said about the encyclical that it will have a pretty big impact. And then he said, if the parties to the Paris negotiations are able to do something across faiths, that would also be very powerful. Keep in mind that the Pope's views will take center stage as he visits the United States in late September, when he will speak to a joint session of the U.S. Congress, and it's hard to imagine that he would not bring it into his speech. I think the encyclical is potentially historic, said U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. I think his speech to the joint session of Congress in September could be a tipping point. No doubt there are many things on his mind which may well include pressing for action on climate change. He will also speak to a joint session of the United Nations in New York. This should also be significant. If the Pope could orchestrate an international agreement on climate change, would that not elevate papal credibility to an all-time high? Pope Francis already has a history of orchestrating deals. For instance, he was intimately involved in the rapprochement between the United States and Cuba and helped to resolve the 50-year standoff. A climate change deal would be an even grander project. Friends, the times we are living in are compelling. We're on a front row seat as we watch the unfolding drama of fulfilling prophecy. You don't want to miss it. As world leaders work to gradually bring about global changes that will make all people less free, particularly less free to follow their conscience, we must be making every effort to come into line with Jesus Christ. We must be making every effort to live His love through obedience to His law. May God's peace be with you, my friends, as we seek to know and do His will. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it is in Jesus' name that we come to you today seeking your blessing. We must get ready for the last moments of earth's history when every conviction we hold will be tested by fire. We pray that you will uphold and strengthen us through all the trials of life, but we especially pray that you will give us your strength to withstand the temptations of the enemy whose aim is to destroy our faith. Please put your Holy Spirit into us to empower and strengthen and enlighten us to the wiles of the enemy. We are told that he comes as an angel of light. It looks good to the untrained eye. But to those who understand the Bible, I pray that your grace will give us a certainty of the future you have planned for us. Keep us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean so much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you've just heard is called Oh for a Closer Walk with God, sung by Melissa Collette da Silva, and it is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Glorious Love. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. If you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends and family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll gladly send them. Please mention the Glorious Love CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Germans upgrading to be on equal footing with NSA. Germany is upgrading its digital and technological spying in Europe to be on an equal footing with the United States National Security Agency, or the NSA. And NSA is cooperating with them. The BND, the German Espionage Service, has intercepted and stored massive amounts of emails from Austria, Luxembourg, and the Czech Republic, according to an internal email from Deutsche Telekom AG. The Austrian domestic intelligence has also been tapped. The governments concerned have raised no serious protests in the Germany-dominated EU. If the truth be known, many other countries in Europe are also being spied on by the German BND. To resurrect Germany's military machine, it must have substantial espionage and surveillance capabilities. The process is gradual, but Germany will eventually be a substantial military power again. Espionage and domestic surveillance were key features of medieval Europe when worship laws and Catholic beliefs were enforced by law, and without surveillance, the new world order and globalization will not be successful in resurrecting the Holy Roman Empire and enforcing its faith on the citizens of Europe. Faithful Daniel knew what it was like to be under surveillance while in Babylon. The princes combed through all his records and everything he did and found nothing by which to accuse him. When they created a worship law with a death penalty, they were quick to use surveillance as a means to accuse him. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Daniel 6, 4, and 11. Next. Vatican advisor says U.S. Declaration of Independence is outmoded. Pope Francis will directly challenge the American idea of God-given rights in the Declaration of Independence, says Jeffrey Sachs, a top advisor to the Vatican. Sachs is also a special advisor to the United Nations and director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. His remarks were published in the Jesuit publication America. He ridiculed the United States as a society in thrall to the outmoded idea of unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He says Pope Francis will urge that the path to happiness lies not solely or mainly through the defense of rights, but through the exercise of virtues, most notably justice and charity. 
Sachs and the Vatican are collaborating in a global campaign to increase the power of global organizations and movements. Sachs knows that the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution stand in the way of what globalists want to achieve, a global society in which everyone lives according to international standards and development. He believes that individual rights must be sacrificed for the greater good, a typical Roman Catholic mantra. In reality, the U.S. Constitution, which embodies those rights in the first ten amendments, stands in the way of the global new world order. No wonder it's under assault by men and women like Sachs. Climate change is being used to justify sweeping removal of principles that have made Western nations free and prosperous. The Vatican is trying to find a way to promote its own agenda to establish itself as the moral voice to guide the nations, and climate change is an ideal opportunity to assert itself. Pope Francis is certainly doing that with his soon-to-be-released encyclical, on the climate and the poor. The Vatican itself is a globalist organization. Collaborating on climate change is a way to get secularists and atheists, as well as religious people of all types, to join with the Vatican in a global issue and promote its goals. Sachs was a featured speaker at a Vatican summit April 28, 2015 on climate change. He said he was thrilled to be at the Vatican discussing moral dimensions of climate change and sustainable development. He plans to launch sustainable development goals as envisioned by the organization he runs called Sustainable Development Solutions Network. The Voice of the Family, a group representing pro-life and pro-family Catholic organizations from around the world, says the network's Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, contains provisions that are radically antagonistic to the right to life from conception to natural death, to the rights and dignity of the family, and to the rights of parents as the primary educators of their children. Sachs says that in September the Pope will call on the world at the United Nations to join the crusade for a new world order. In July, the UN will sponsor a Financing for Development conference to develop various tax proposals and in December, a conference in Paris to complete a new climate change agreement. Note how rapidly this issue is moving under Vatican guidance and promotion. On September 25, Sachs wrote, Pope Francis will speak to the world leaders, most likely the largest number of assembled heads of state and government in history, as these leaders deliberate to adopt new sustainable development goals that aim to harmonize the pursuit of economic prosperity with the commitments to social inclusion and environmental sustainability. That's global speak for world government that centralizes planning, removes individual rights, and requires submission to globalist objectives. Notice that the Vatican has placed itself right at the center of it. Sachs says that the gospel teachings of humility, love, and justice like the teachings of Aristotle, Buddha, and Confucius, can take us on a path to happiness through compassion and become our guidepost back to safety. In order to bring people from multiple religions together, Pope Francis and the Vatican will provide a religious face to help bring about world government in the name of climate change. And all the world wondered after the beast. Revelation 13 verse 3. The next is another prominent evangelical says we are near the end. 
Anne Graham Lotz, 67, the daughter of retired evangelist Billy Graham and best-selling author said on May 20, our world is unraveling and that we're coming close to the end of human history. Speaking on Fox News Radio's Alan Combs show, Lotz answered the question whether she believed that we are at the end times now. I believe that it is, Alan. I base that not just on feelings. I base it on what Jesus said in the New Testament and what I see going on in the world at the same time. And they match, Lotz remarked. So I put that together and I believe we're coming close to the end of human history as we know it, she said. With that comes accountability before God, which we would call a judgment. Lotz, author of 11 books and recipient of six honorary doctorates in ministry and biblical exegesis, explained how she knows it is the end times. I read my Bible, and then I line up God's Word with what I see happening in the world, and they come together. Our world is unraveling. I think the whole world senses, especially those who follow the news, senses that something is happening, that it is very unsettling. Well, you don't need doctorates in ministry and biblical exegesis to know that we are at the end times. In fact, it is often the theologians and so-called biblical scholars that scoff at the idea that we're at the end times and try to explain away the clear evidence of Scripture. Speaking of God's judgments, Lot says, God's judgment is not necessarily like a nuclear strike or lightning coming from the sky or the ground opening up. It is just that God backs away from us. He removes his hand that's been protecting us and restraining evil, she said. And when he removes it, because we've been telling him to get out, then life can't go on as it has. It begins to collapse. He removes his protection when we don't repent of our sin, when we rebel against him. There's a separation of church and state, Lots continued, and that's not a separation of state and God. Our founding fathers believed in God, and they honored God, and they respected God. And until the 1900s, the Bible was a textbook in schools. So when you begin to remove God, and you know we have been, he backs away. The New York Times has described Lotz as one of the five most influential evangelists in the United States. Evangelical voices are increasingly raising an alarm and suggesting that we are near the end of time. In her gentle way, influential Lotz is laying the foundation to call for a Sunday law to get the nation back to God. The present is a time of overwhelming interest to all living, rulers and statesmen, men who occupy positions of trust and authority. Thinking men and women of all classes have their attention fixed upon the events taking place about us. They are watching the strained, restless relations that exist among the nations. They observe the intensity that is taking possession of every earthly element, and they recognize that something great and decisive is about to take place, that the world is on the verge of a stupendous crisis. That's Education, page 179. Next, another advocate for Sunday observance. In an article published on the Lord's Day Alliance website, Merv Knox reviewed a speech given by Matthew Sleeth, the director of Blessed Earth, a nonprofit that emphasizes stewardship of the earth. Sleeth advocated keeping Sunday as the Sabbath at the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Annual General Assembly in Atlanta this summer. We really, really need to keep the Sabbath, Sleeth said to the group. Time is something the whole world is having trouble with. 
Claiming that America is the most depressed nation on earth, Sleeth argued that Sunday rest would cure at least some of the malady. A stop day is a good antidote, he said. In the Ten Commandments, it's the link between heaven and earth, said Sleeth. Keeping the Sabbath is fundamental to keeping the other commandments. He also said that the Sabbath has been God's plan since creation. Fact is, keeping the Sabbath seems like the easiest of the Ten Commandments to break, he added. The first three, put God first, no idols, no cussing, feel frightful to break. The last six, honor your parents and don't murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet, look downright heinous. But breaking the Sabbath, what could it hurt? Jesus' disciples broke the Sabbath, he said. Even church can wear us out on Sundays. With all that stuff that goes on nowadays, it's almost impossible not to break the Sabbath. Don't you think God designed the Sabbath not as one more rule to keep, but the cure for much of what ails us, Sleeth asked. He provides some tips also. Number one, if you absolutely cannot keep the Sabbath on Sunday, schedule another stop day. Number two, keeping the Sabbath is like exercise. It builds up, he insisted. You do it for a couple of weeks and you don't notice. But you do it for a whole year and it changes your life. It changes your character. Number three, try to do it with someone else, he advised. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Revelation 13, 15. Next. Pope Francis asks forgiveness of the Waldensians for persecution. Pope Francis visited the Waldensian church in Turin and in a powerful emotional moment asked the Waldensians to forgive the Catholic Church for its historic and brutal persecution in the Middle Ages. Francis is the first pope ever to enter a Waldensian church. On the part of the Catholic Church, I ask your forgiveness. I ask it for the non-Christian and even inhuman attitudes and behavior that we have showed you, said Pope Francis. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us. Prior to the Pope's remarks, Pastor Eugenio Bernardini, the pastor of the Waldensian community in Turin, asked why the church had been rejected by Rome. What was the sin of the Waldensians, he asked. It was being a movement of popular evangelization carried out by lay people using itinerant preaching from the Bible, read and explained in the language of the people. In his remarks, Bernardini, who is also the moderator of the Waldensian board, listed the representatives of other churches present, including Methodists, Lutherans, Baptists, and Adventists. As moderator of the Waldensian board, I want to thank you in particular for the words of fraternity you have repeatedly expressed towards our church. By entering this temple, you have crossed a historic threshold, that of a wall that stood over eight centuries ago when the Waldensian movement was accused of heresy and excommunicated by the Roman Church. We believe that Christian unity can and should be designed precisely so, as reconciled diversity, he added. This is precisely ecumenism, the end of self-churches. Each church needs the other to fulfill its vocation. We cannot be Christians alone, Bernardini continued. The moderator also gave a list of collaborations between the two churches. We believe that relationships between the Waldensian Church and the Roman Catholic Church have already produced good results in various fields, including the interconfessional translation of the Bible in the vernacular, the week of prayer for Christian unity, 
Christian collaboration at the level of theological faculties, collaboration in the formulation of the ecumenical charter, and the common Catholic evangelical orthodox document signed March 9, combating violence against women, etc. He also significantly included the Eucharist, which is at the heart of the Roman Catholic ecumenical agenda. Among the things we have in common, he said, are the bread and the wine of the Last Supper and the words that Jesus spoke on that occasion. The interpretations of those words are different between the churches and within each of them. But what unites Christians gathered around the table of Jesus are the bread and the wine he offers us and his words, not our interpretations. Then urging that the Eucharist be the theme of the celebrations of the end of Protestantism in 2017, Bernardini said, It would be nice if, in view of 2017, our churches would face together this theme. In conclusion, he said, And it is our true ecumenical mandate, dear brother Francesco, what we call unity above all in proclaiming the word, because the world may believe, John 17, 21. Dear Pope Francesco, thanks for being with us and with us. God bless and enlighten your service. Pope Francis' remarks also reflected on unity in diversity. He said the principal benefit of ecumenism is the rediscovery of the fraternity that unites all those who believe in Jesus Christ and are baptized in his name. Then he added, but the unity that is in the fruit of the Holy Spirit does not mean uniformity. Brothers have in common the same origin, but they are not identical among themselves. Pope Francis' ancestors come from the region around Turin where the ancient Waldenses lived before their persecutions. Some of Francis' relatives still live in this area. And after the visit of the Waldensian temple, he met and celebrated mass with approximately 30 of his family members, including six cousins and their families. The Waldenses stridently objected to the Mass in the Middle Ages. The Waldenses claim to currently have 45,000 followers, mostly in Italy, Argentina, and Uruguay. And all the world wondered after the beast. Revelation 13, verse 3. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in his loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.